0: Hello and welcome to Wine Blast, the place where wine glasses are always topped up and celebration is never too far away. And that's particularly true of this episode in which we are raising a glass, or three, to mark a very special anniversary, aren't we?
1: Now, if you're, if you're claiming that we've only got three glasses uh, of wine on the go, I'm afraid I can't support that, that blatant untruth. Uh, the table in front of us tells a very different story.
0: It does. It does. It
1: okay, does. as long as that's clear. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, this, this episode is indeed all about celebrating the 50th anniversary of the famous Marlborough wine region in New Zealand, uh, which was first planted to vines in August 1973.
0: Now we're going to tell the, the story and everything of course uh, yeah. but just as an opening thought isn't it incredible how far Marlborough has come in only 50 50- harvests. Mm. You know, some Mm. traditional wine regions have been growing wine for thousands of years. Even some New World areas have been at it for hundreds of years. And yet Marlborough is right up there in terms of wine quality, Mm -hmm. wine potential and excitement these days. And that's all in just half a century.
1: I agree. It's amazing. I mean, It kind of makes you reflect on your own achievements, doesn't it? What, oh. have, I, what have I done in 50 years?
0: Maybe that's uh, not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no. it's no. not. You know, Don't go that there. way.
1: Existential crisis uh, <laughs> looms. Anyway, you know, as you say, we're going to tell uh, Marlborough's full, remarkable story in due course. But, you know, I guess just to whet the appetite, we, we could start by saying this is the stuff of Hollywood scripts, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. think about it. It's your kind of classic. Zero to hero plot. It all begins with just one hardworking immigrant family setting off to seek their fortune in a remote island on the other side of the world. And um, then the brave visionary son takes a huge punt exactly fifty years ago, risking financial ruin in the process on a region where you know even the skinny sheep are laughing at him for, do- <laughs> for doing this. You know, various disasters ensue, but then. A series of, of slices of luck combined with, you know, proper kiwi grit and inventiveness. And, and, and suddenly, you know, the Queen's visiting to plant Sauvignon Blanc vine. And everyone in the world is drinking this stuff and producers are coining it. And, and you're helping shape the future.
0: And then the right. ultimate accolade, of course, a Wine Blast podcast episode. <laughs> We <laughs> doesn't the get eddy, better than that the does it heights
1: i mean <laughs>
0: <laughs> no but you're quite right i mean it is it's a fantastic story mm. just just how it all began uh, and we've got some expert insights to help us tell that story mm. of which here's a very brief snippet
2: why would grapes grow in marlborough you know it's never been done before nobody even drank wine so this is gonna fail all of a sudden they're going oh this potentially could be something yeah
1: Jamie Marfle there, who, who as a boy remembers those first vines being planted uh, and who's now gone on to become Greek winemaker for Pernod Ricard, one of the country's biggest uh, producers. His main brand, just to give you an idea, Brancot Escape, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, sells about 9 million litres every year. So, you know, he's making a fair bit it's of a lot of Sauvignon. Uh, we're also going to be getting a very different perspective uh, from Hans and Therese Herzog, uh, Swiss émigrés, who looked all around the world with a very critical eye, before settling on Marlborough in 1994 to make their tiny production unique wines from just one organic vineyard.
0: Now, we should add at this point that this is a sponsored episode in conjunction with New Zealand wine growers. So thanks to them for giving us the excuse to enthuse about what is, to be absolutely honest, and this is nothing to do with sponsorship New Zealand is one of our favorite wine regions in the world yeah actually Ma-
1: but the Marlborough within that as well and marlborough within particularly. that
0: um so we've been we've been lucky enough to visit um a few times mm. and we are constantly tasting and drinking the wines today being no exception given we have as we've said a brilliant mm. lineup of marlborough wines here to recommend to you and we'll do that at the end of the episode
1: yeah I think we're gonna have to taste a few as we go along too is that is that fair enough you know, is it a story t- storytelling you need refreshments. You know, it's, good it's good for the voice. Good for good for the resonance. <laughs> I'd say it's good for the focus. Mm, yeah, maybe we'll put would. that to the test. Any excuse, <laughs> like, enough, yeah. enough. Anyway, let's turn my around. Uh, why don't we start at the beginning? Yeah. Um, and on that note, we could actually be celebrating the hundred. And 50th anniversary of Marlborough Wine. Uh, Because, and and not many people know this, the first vines were actually planted in 1873. And and Pop Quiz, do you know the nationality of that wine pioneer?
0: The obvious temptation is to say French. It is, isn't it? But Scottish. <laughs> of
1: I mean, yeah, Scottish,
0: really? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's
1: interesting actually. I, I mean, know that. I know immigration was how New Zealand was populated, you know, even by the Maori from the Pacific Islands um, from the 13th century onwards. But you know, even then, it's interesting how New Zealand wine is often the story of, of immigrants, so be they from Dalmatia, which is in modern day Croatia, uh, or Lebanon, or Ireland or Australia or in this case uh, the Scotsman David Hurd who planted a small muscat vineyard back in the day in the southern valleys uh, of Marlborough in, in known times it was sort of for, for personal consumption you know but it's interesting to note um, that that vineyard has been revived today under the Artsville brand so you can actually see that slice of history in Marlborough.
0: But to be, to be fair, that didn't last long, did it, originally? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't the real beginning of Marlborough Wine. No,
1: no, not in a proper sense. So, so um, you know, a bit of context. New Zealand never really had much history or culture of wine drinking. And, and the temperance or anti-alcohol movement, boo, uh, <laughs> that's the sound effect there, uh, it, was, it was really strong in the late 19th and early 20th century. So vineyards you know, might pop up, but they'd end up disappearing. So what you had was a pretty basic... Local booze market dominated by beer and highly dodgy wine, Um, mainly fortified stuff and hybrid vines or, you know, just gut rot made from raisins, sugar and wine. Um,
0: Raisins, sugar and wine or raisins, sugar and water? Maybe just water. Raisins,
1: sugar and water. Water, water. Was probably close to the truth.
0: But then it changed, didn't it? Yeah.
1: and, and there were a number of reasons for that. You know, For one, Kiwis who, who'd served in both world wars in Europe returned with a taste for decent wine. Uh, then the government helped by doing things like hiking taxes on foreign wines and, and local spirits. But most important was the, was the sort of dogged work of companies like Corbyn's, uh, which was set up by a Lebanese immigrant, uh, and also a number of wine producers set up by Dalmatian, Emigres, like, like for example, Babich, Selax, uh, Mazarans, mm. just to name name a few.
0: Mm, mm. And and this is where we come on to the the Yukich family, mm. isn't it? And the the founding mm. of Marlborough. And. I love this story. Um, so, so Dalmatian immigrant Ivan Jukic had established a wine company in Auckland mm. in 1944, which became Montana and then, of course, changed name to, to Brancot in 2010. Mm. Now, by the early 1970s, Ivan's son, Frank, was desperate to develop production and volume and then exports. But the land in the North Island was expensive. So he hatched a cunning plan.
1: We love a good wine plan.
0: Indeed. So, Frank Jukic asked his viticulturist, Wayne Thomas, to identify the best unplanted vineyard land in New Zealand. And Thomas quickly settled on Marlborough. Mm. Now, we'll come come on to why in a second, but the best bit is that Jukic realised that if he rode into town as the big wine man asking to buy land, people would see an opportunity and prices would go through the roof. (laughs) So, he formed a cover, mm. Cloudy Bay Developments, and got the estate agent to find him 1,200 hectares in 24 hours, <laughs> at which point he put down a straight 10% non-refundable deposit out of his own pocket.
1: Because he hadn't told the uh, the Montana board, had he? No, no. <laughs> this this is he, what I mean, the,
0: the deception worked on many levels. Uh, so so he, he defied the Montana board on this one. And let's be clear, this was madness. He'd just bought a vast tract of nothingness, known for growing, as you said, skinny sheep and livestock feed. Yeah. And when they started to plant vines, everyone was laughing at him. So he could have been ruined by this. And
1: the board initially turned him down, didn't they? And, and yeah. demanded answers as to why he'd done it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so Wayne Thomas, you remember Jukic's yeah. viticulturist, laid out the reasons He thought Marlborough would be good for wine. Free draining soils, warmish maritime climate, fairly dry, generally free from frost, Mm. frequent (laughs) winds to prevent disease. Also, crucially, intense sunlight to to promote photosynthesis and flavour development. And the Maori name for, for central Marlborough is the place with the hole in the cloud. Anyway, mm. all the same reasons that, that make it such a good place to mm. grow wine today, mm. but this wasn't enough for the board. They wanted more validation. So Thomas had to get second opinions from various Californian wine experts to support his reasoning before the board did eventually, reluctantly, back the move. I mean, you always
1: get echoes of, of, of the publishers who turned down Harry Potter, you know, or, <laughs> or the music labels who turned down the Beatles.
0: I mean, I think know. it was a, a close-run thing. Yeah. Um, and it goes to show that establishing a new wine region isn't just about data. It's also about bravery and vision and mm. ambition and mm. a bit of luck you know <laughs> an, an interesting yet more foreign influence this time from the US
2: yeah yeah you know, anyway yeah,
0: montana right. pay, paid um 1.3 million new zealand dollars um, for the for the 1173 hectares of land um just over a $1,000 per hectare and the first vines were planted in August 1973. But Frank Jukic wasn't one to do things by halves. He bust in a load of journalists for the planting ceremony and declared wines from here will become world famous.
1: It kind of reminds me of uh, Jan van Riebeck in in South Africa in 1659, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, You know, he said something very similar. Yeah, yeah. Well, the wines from here will will become famous, you Mm. know. Uh, and I guess it's probably maybe another example of bravery but you could also say just bravado <laughs> in yeah. terms of broaching entirely new ground for wine people need a flag waiver to say here's going to be you amazing do. you need these even people if, maybe they don't even believe it themselves well
0: does. this is true but you, yeah. anyway <laughs> I, I think at this stage it's probably time to bring in Jamie and mm. um, as you said Jamie is now a successful winemaker for the very company that planted the first vines mm. Brancott, uh, which was Montana and which is now owned by French drinkers. Multinational Pernod Ricard. But he's also Marlborough born and bred, so he has a few stories to tell. Um, We caught up with him in the Groucho Club in central London and we wanted to start off topical. So the first question was why is Marlborough so important in the story of wine?
2: I guess it's all about Marlborough singing It's really put us on the map. It's uh, what makes us quite unique and it's, it's the the wine that that you can pour at a dinner table anywhere in the world and somebody who knows a little bit about wine would go, oh, what's that? And you more than likely, if you knew a little bit about wine, they would go, well, it's probably a Syrah long from Marlborough. It is quite unique. It's a, a unique offering. and the, I mean, the industry in New Zealand, the wine industry is you know, over 100 years old now. These wineries are 125, even older. But in reality... It didn't really kick into action until Marlborough came on the scene fifty years ago. And and a part of that is the journey. It's not just the fifty years, it's you no know, planting the first Sean Blanc, which was a couple of years later, you know, then making the first wines, and not going getting the first accolades in the early eighties, you know. So it didn't like it wasn't seventy three when we first planted, it was like the mid eighties. Then you no, know, like the UK you no know, to be honest, it was the UK wine writers, the UK you no know, wine industry here, we, this is quite unique. We quite like this. And all of a sudden, even in New Zealand, we were going, oh, we could be on to a winner. But we didn't really know, you know. And I guess being a young industry, I guess, you know, we learnt from our mistakes. We learnt really quickly. We diversified. We just did what New Zealanders do, you know. Pull stuff out, have another go, pull it out, have another go. We went, oh, this me it's kind of sticking, you know. And it was good. It was good.
1: So a story of resilience is as much or as resilience.
2: <laughs> oh no! I'd say probably it's probably resilience. It's probably I oh, probably had we stuck in there because it was tough times in the '80s, you know, the early '90s. You no know, wine companies were not doing well. There was resilience here, but there's also that whole innovation, I guess. Um, innovation. Innovation is quite important, and yeah, just you know, the wines were making. Well, I've been making wines for 32 years, and like the first Saint Blanc we're making, I remember 1990. You know, it's, it was. I had about ten half in alcohol and it's pretty I look back now and went, Oh, it's probably a nice wine, but oh, I'd probably chuck it out and just so saying it's pretty bloody average. You know, we'd probably do a lot better. So even our wine styles are diversified, you know, The industry's gone from zero and um like I think we're up to about thirty thousand hectares planted in Marlborough, you know. Now in fifty years we've gone from zero to thirty thousand hectares and it covers across Marlborough. Now it's dot and we talk about subappellations and all sorts of stuff, which the consumer probably gets confused with, but for us you know, there's different styles of Sablonc coming out of Marlborough and it's really cool. It's pretty cool.
1: So a commitment to innovation as much yeah. as anything else as well. So let me you've mentioned quite a lot there. There's quite yeah, a lot to yeah, pick up mate, with. So yeah. I'm gonna just take it take it step by step. But
2: you know, just before the dawn of let's say Marlborough take was picture big, of what yeah. was yeah, what was New Zealand White like? Well, I guess the fortified were quite big at some stage. I mean the beer industry was the dominating industry. You've got to realise that beer was what it was all about. You know, the early 1900s, the beer consumption was large, and the beer companies were you know, throwing it. Wine was even not even the background. People didn't drink wine. None. My parents grew up, we were born and bred in Melbourne. My parents never drank wine. My dad, you know, mum might have one glass. I don't know, a bottle of wine might turn up at the odd dinner party in my childhood, probably never. But it was, you know, flagons of beer and, you what, know. What would the wine
1: have been if it did of Oh,
2: it's scary. I mean, I don't know. And it was recipe based. I, when I first started with my youth, I, I saw some old recipes for making wine, and it was you know the somebody came, it wasn't all back then. It was all pounds of grapes and you know, liters of water and pounds of sugar and. All, that was all, the recipe for yeah, making yeah, wine back yeah, in the Yeah, well. there was fermenting it, and the amazing what you'd do with a, a kg of grapes. You could make a lot of liters of wine. Yeah, it was just pretty. Yeah, well, I guess there was no regulations, so it was unregulated. I guess we're at the other end of the world, so nobody really cared what we we're doing as long as it's kind of you know filled, filled a niche and a nation and tasted okay. I don't, I'd hate to think what it tasted like.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, so good and bad stuff. But yeah, you, bad. then going back to the origin of of, of you know yeah. of, of Branko, uh, Montana, as it was yeah. maybe yeah. back in the days, the Yukich. Yeah. Um, but then, in you know, in, in August 1973, as has since gone down in legend. Frank yeah. uh you know, bought a whole load of pretty cheap land, what was pretty yep. cheap land in Marlborough, and, and planted vines, and made a bit of publicity about it. So why was this different?
2: Even for him, he went out on a limb to take a risk on something which was probably not there. It was a huge risk. I guess it was an unbelievably risky. Then he got the data know he verified the climatic data through uh, davis university the, he actually had to get approved to the board that he, this was actually a goer so he actually had to the board of Montana, the board Montana, yeah because the, the the land was kind of purchased before the okay then basically he had to go back to the board and prove that the fact that the land was actually in the region was actually so uh, he had to and he had to get approval from sort of the U.S. Californian winemakers. Oh, I like, guess yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I, the, oh, there's no expertise. I mean, where was the expertise at the time? You know, I guess it was either, it was either in Europe or in the U.S. and Davis University. was a famous, you know, university. And when the data came out, they said, "Oh, yeah, that looks pretty good," you know. But, but still, it's a risk, oh, I don't know. You know, there's so many. It's not just you know the sunshine hours and rainfall. There's so many different things. You know, frost data, all sorts of stuff. That they probably never published or never had data on. I, I don't know, they might have had all that data, but it's pretty hard to predict a brand new grape growing region anywhere in the world just based on a little bit of data. I don't know, it's, it's just crazy.
1: And this was yeah. sort of sheep farming country. Sheep farming before, country, right? yeah.
2: Okay. BLX, so nothing. So even the concept of growing a grape in Marlborough was even on the on the radar. I mean, my mum and dad had a farm, where my farmers we're farmers for we had a sheep farm at the end of the Brancot Valley. It was just crazy. At the time, you know, like me drawing the going on the bus to school, to see people ploughing up huge amounts of, you know, great, of um, you know, this was good farming sheep land, pulling out fences. It was like, why are they pulling out fences? You know, that's crazy. And then the pulling out trees and pulling out everything. Then basically big paddocks of flat areas. Like, what are they doing? It was like, yeah, it's crazy. It was like the time it was... Stuff you'd never seen before. And the the other great, th- weird thing, uh, Montana went out and bought all these brand-new tractors. Uh, my parents were poor, you know. Everybody had, you know, because you're growing skinny sheep in Marlborough, which were good for nothing, you know. The land was good for nothing, you know, because there was no irrigation, no water, no centre pivots or anything. So it was dry land farming. So we just grew a few skinny sheep and didn't make any money. But all of a sudden, all this money come into Marlborough, you know, brand-new tractors. Everybody's going... Never seen so many brand new tractors. It was so much capital went in, and it was like, "Wow, oh, this is just crazy stuff. And it was, it was just crazy.
1: So you remember, you know, as a local remember, lab thinking at the yeah, time, yeah. wine was almost like an invasion, and you thought, this is crazy, this will never last, this is just weird. The,
2: the chat around the dinner table, Dad, Mum, and all our friends, it was like, this is going to fail, you know. All <laughs> oh, the thing is, why would grapes grow in Marlborough, you know? Why? Was it, it, considered, one it, too, was it considered too cool? You know, what, what, what were the impediments? Why did you think it wouldn't work? Oh, it's probably it's more the mindset. It's more the fact that it's never been done before. Mm. It's yeah, it's just grapes. You know, grapes. <laughs> no grapes didn't even grow anywhere in New Zealand really, a little bit. And, you know, nobody even drank wine, so it wasn't that important, was it? Mm. So all of a sudden, they're going, oh, this potentially could be something. Yeah.
0: I can just see the the skinny sheep gazing quizzically at the brand new tractors. I mean, it's a great image, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. he's got a brilliant turn of phrase, hasn't he? I mean, yeah, yeah. this Sauvignon Blanc is sticking. sticking. And I love his honesty. You know, saying he'd have chucked out the Sauvignon Blanc he yeah. made in 1990 if he'd had that today. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, I guess it speaks to you know, just how fast and furious the progress has been. Um, and, you know, he makes the point, doesn't he, it was partly Marlborough that was the catalyst for the entire New Zealand wine industry to really take off or, or kick into action, uh, in his words. You know, it's all about this sort of classic Kiwi spirit, you know, <laughs> exemplified by one man, Frank Jukic, uh, even though, you know, Croatian immigrant, you know, equal parts sort of dogged resilience and and, and restlessly imaginative, innovative brilliance, and, and, and the massive risk he took on Marlborough back in, in 1973.
0: Yeah, and we'll come back to that spirit of innovation in, in a bit. Mm. Coming up, uh, we have more from Jamie on the exciting ways Marlborough has developed since being founded. We also hear from Hans and Therese Herzog about their ambitions for weird and wonderful things in the region. To recap so far, these days New Zealand's Marlborough wine region is world famous for its Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Noir and much more, but 50 years ago it was a sheep farming wilderness in a beer drinking culture. But then Montana's Frank Yukich came along, took a massive punt on planting vines to make wine and the rest is history.
1: Well, it might be history, but I think there's a bit more of a story to tell before it's a sort of fait accompli. <laughs> um, and this is where disaster and serendipity comes in. So, Montana planted the first vines to much fanfare in 1973. And, and Jamie told me it was probably a big mix of things that went in, uh, mainly Germanic varieties for whites, like muller Turgau, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, also things like Palomino. Uh, Chasselas and Chenin Blanc uh, with Cabernet Sauvignon for red as you um, do <laughs> it's an interesting mix <laughs> it's isn't quite it, a mix right? isn't it but then disaster struck 70% of the young vines died of drought um, so they replanted this time trying to protect the baby vines with 800,000 ingenious little protective cones which were immediately blown away by the winds so you, you can kind of get the picture here don't you <laughs> Anyway, um, you know, somehow they managed to get some of these things growing. And in 1975, two years after the first plantings, the first Sauvignon Blanc was planted or or savvy as it's sometimes known in shorthand.
0: And do do we know why (laughs) Sauvignon Blanc was chosen particularly?
1: Yeah, no one really seems to know why. Uh, There isn't isn't sort of one compelling reason uh, and vision. You know, Jamie said it was probably just a bit of a scattergun approach as per the other plantings. Uh, Mm. So probably just, you know, sort of a happy accident. Um, Anyway, Montana made their first Sauvignon Blanc vintage in 1979 and, you know, it kind of hit the ground running. Yeah, I mean, um,
0: Sauvignon Blanc does have a tendency to do that, doesn't it? Uh, you mm, often hear true. about new plantings doing really well. Uh, I mean, mm. new plantings of any variety have a tendency to do well for a couple of years. Yeah. But it's a rare variety where often younger vines in general produce better quality than older ones.
1: Yeah, you, do, you do hear that, don't you? Um, but, th- but then to carry on the story, you know, another disaster struck. phylloxera. Uh, the vine pest that wiped out entire European wine regions in the 19th and 20th centuries finally caught up with New Zealand in the 1980s. But again, you know, as with the droughts, this cloud had a silver lining. You know, on the one hand, it meant people were forced to replant on phylloxera-resistant rootstocks, but on the other, they could choose to replant with more popular grape varieties, which was, of course, at that time, Sauvignon Blanc primarily, um, and it was the same story when the New Zealand government sponsored a vine pool in the mid-1980s because of a wine glut. Growers took the money to grub up the mediocre vines and used the money to plant Sauvignon Blanc. Otherwise, Marlborough might still be, you know, muller Turgau country. So snatching
0: triumph from the jaws of defeat. Um, <laughs> it is funny how these things work yeah, out sometimes, yeah, isn't it?
1: especially with wine. And, and and meantime, they've been getting some good fortune too. So one example of this was the cloudy bay effect. So Kevin Judd, told me how this came about. Kevin was the first winemaker of the famous Marlborough producer, Cloudy Bay. We all know the name, don't we? He's now at Grey Wacky. We'll come on to that in a minute. Um, Kevin's originally from England, as it happens, just up the road from us uh, in Hampshire. Anyway, he told me how a group of Kiwi winemakers had visited Australia in the early 1980s for a conference in Perth, and they'd made a pilgrimage to Cape Mantel, Mantel, the the famous Margaret River winery founded by David Honan. Um, The Kiwi winemakers were impressed by the reds, apparently, but not so much by the whites. Uh, So they gave David a bottle of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc to try, and in Kevin's words, that bottle... Was the inspiration for Cloudy Bay?
0: Wasn't there a rumour that that Cloudy Bay was nearly called Farewell Spit? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> is that right? It is definitely a rumour. Sure um, I think it's apocryphal, Kevin. Kevin certainly denies it with a smile on his face. You don't quite know it, Kevin. Um, it would have been brilliant, though,
0: wouldn't it? Farewell, I mean, Spit. Yeah, um, brilliant. Just, name for so, a for those who aren't aware, Farewell Spit is a sandbank not far from Marlborough with a brilliant um,
1: name that has relevance to wine. <laughs> if, if you're spilling. Anyway, yeah. So, so David Honan, an Australian, and Kevin Judd, an Englishman, basically bought some Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc fruit. And this was at a time when the New Zealand wine scene wasn't in great shape. It was, there was the glut and all this other stuff. wasn't exporting much. So they just bought this stuff because they'd been impressed by this bottle. They got no winery or brand, but they came up with Cloudy Bay, you know. Um, they used Cape Mantel's distribution and David's reputation. Their first vintage was 1985. And it kind of lit the touch paper.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's probably fair to say things were happening on a few fronts around that time, weren't they? Uh, I mm, mean, for example, yeah. Ernie Hunter... Uh, shall we say, a a persuasive Irishman making wine in Marlborough, (laughs) won the Sunday Times Wine Club Vintage Festival popular vote three years in a row with his Sauvignon. Mm. Uh, And generally, people just started to be wowed by this unique style of Sauvignon Blanc, totally different from the wines made from the same grape in Sancerre or or in California. Mm. This was utterly vivid and Pungent, in-your-face aromas of passion fruit and green pepper, and waves of invigorating acidity. It was it was pretty much fireworks in a glass, and it was revolutionary at the time.
1: Yeah, and the world sat up and, and smelt the coffee, as it were. You know, or the Sauvignon rather, <laughs> um, and the Queen ahead of the curve as ever. Queen Elizabeth II, uh, bless her, planted a Sauvignon Blanc vine at the Brancourt Estate in 1989. And and this was the time things really took off. So a few stats here. In her book, uh, The Wines of New Zealand, excellent book, Rebecca Gibb M.W. says, In 1986, there were 1. 1.6 million sheep and 1,000 hectares of vines in the Marlborough region. By 2007, so 20 years later, yeah. the number of sheep was down by two thirds, and vines had proliferated 13-fold to 13,000 right. hectares. And land prices, interestingly, if you remember, originally when Frank bought it, it was $1,000 per hectare. Yeah, they'd gone up. They'd gone from $8,000 per hectare in, in mid mid 80s to $255,000. New Zealand dollars Whoa. per hectare by two thousand and seven. <gasps> Interesting that I've read something to say that lately, That's good vineyard great. land in Marlborough is about four hundred thousand New Zealand dollars per
0: hectare. I mean, God. and and this <laughs> partly reflects just how profitable mm. Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc has Absolutely. been. I mean, yeah. I mean, yields can be pretty big. It doesn't need aging or expensive oak, so it can be released pretty soon after the vintage. Mm. And and New Zealand has actually done a good job of keeping prices at a relative premium. Mm. I mean, just it's not cheap. No, it's not, and and you know they they've never. Sort of yeah, let it be undervalued, mm. you know. And just for reference, today, Marlborough is just shy of 30,000 hectares planted, mm. over 90% of which is Sauvignon Blanc. Mm. And Marlborough accounts for more than three quarters of all New Zealand wine production and 90% of all New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc.
1: Marlborough is more than three quarters of all mm. New, Zealand New Zealand wine production. All. And, and that's from there's, nothing.
0: There's quite a lot of regions in New Zealand. Yeah, there um, are. But yeah, it gives yeah. you an idea of the it's, scale.
1: It's, it's the engine room, it, isn't it? It really is. Um, it
0: really is. Yeah, it's just amazing
1: to consider it was, it was only 50 years ago. Anyway, mm. it, you know, it's it's really interesting to see how Marlborough has evolved to where it is today as well. And it, it's sort of exciting in that sense to consider the next 50 years ahead. Um, what it, it can coming. achieve. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: there's so much to talk about, isn't there? Yeah. But one thing i definitely highlight if we're going to stick with the subject of Marlborough's most famous product, Sauvignon Blanc, mm. is the way in which it's not just one thing anymore. So mm. over time, Sauvignons grown in different parts of Marlborough have started to show different characteristic, characteristics. Um, mm. And winemakers have very skillfully transmitted that in, in, in a sense of terroir in the wines.
1: Yeah, so so you, you still get these big sort of pan-Marlborough blends, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, like Jamie's Brancourt Estate Sauvignon, for example, which, which puts all these different sub-regional characters together, blend them together. But at the same time, now... You can get site-specific souvenirs with very distinctive characters from Wairau to Awateri or Owatree to the Southern Valleys. Well, I mean, um, why,
0: why don't we let Jamie take over here?
2: Yeah, I guess that's the key with evolution and we've kind of grown into our Sablon kind of trousers and we are kind of, you no know, we've starting to realise... Well, Savon's really good. And we just starting to realise when we're in our tanks. You now, if you keep a tank separate from all these different Appalachians, you know, sub-regions of Marlborough, they give you these little like, differences between between wines. And basically, the warmer regions of Marlborough, say next to the Wairau River, which are on gravel, so that's where you know, our stony brand comes from. On average, it's warmer at night by 1 to one 1.5 degrees over the growing season. So it's actually a warmer... You know, sub-region of Marlborough. So it, it bud bursts earlier, it ripens earlier, now we pick it earlier and everything else. But it changes the, the aromatic qualities in the glass. So basically we have less green characteristics. Because it's warm climate, it's less green characteristics. And pyrazines are very low, so it's less herbaceous. But it tends to be, we get a bit more thials, which are the pasture fruit, grapefruit. So f- from a warmer region, we tend to get a riper style of Sauvignon Blanc. Um, then you go into the cooler parts of so the southern valleys, the clays, where it gets cooler at night, longer growing season, just a, a cooler. And then you start building on some of these greener characteristics. And um, yeah, you get a, a completely different profile, say, from the southern valleys. Then you go to the Arltree Valley, which is now the valley over. Um, again, it's a later ripening. No region, and again, real green characteristics coming through. Real zingy. You, know, you get those tomato leaf kind of uh, herbal, kind of wild thyme. You know, they're all crunchy kind of characteristics, and they kind of all completely different. So, if you're making a regional blend like a Marlborough blend, it's brilliant because you've got all these different flavour profiles to bring it together. But uh, yeah, but you can make these sub appellation wines, which are absolutely beautiful too.
0: Beautiful indeed. Mm. And we've got a beautiful map in front of us, haven't we? Yeah. The Appalachian Marlborough, wine map of Marlborough, showing all these sub-Appalachians from Lower Wairau to Central Wairau to Upper Wairau, mm. Southern Valleys, Owatree, Blind River mm. and Southern Coast. It really puts into geographical form. You love your maps, don't you? I do you? love my you're maps. You're got almost, it. almost stroking it, aren't you? I am. Um, but it does, it sort of puts into ge- geographical form what you can taste in the glass.
1: There's no here be monsters. There's a little whale on it, actually, which is oh. quite nice. It. Um, yeah, it really does. And and this sort of ever-developing sense of sight and terroir in the wines, I think it's really encouraging. You know, not just in Sauvignon Blanc either, but also in things like Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris and Chardonnay, uh, which are the next most planted varieties after Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough. Um, and these varieties are also really exciting. You know, Jamie says he loves Chardonnay and it's one of the, Underrated varieties mm. in Marlborough. I think we tend to agree with that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. But but it's it's also not just about these headliner varieties, is it? Um one of the intriguing things about Marlborough is it seems that almost almost anything is possible there. Yeah. And those were the certainly the thoughts of Hans and Therese Herzog, mm. Swiss-born emigres, as we've said, who bought land in Marlborough in 1994 and make wine under the Hans Herzog brand. Hans is from a long line of Swiss winemakers, an ambitious and instinctive brilliant winemaker mm. who felt constrained in his homeland, so sought Pastures new.
1: Yeah, they considered many places, but they just couldn't get better than Marlborough, uh, which is quite telling. Um, they found a relatively warm, gravelly plot near the Wairau River that reminded them of Pomerol in Bordeaux. Uh, Hans's original plan was to grow Bordeaux varieties as a sort of totally different kind of challenge than what he'd faced in Switzerland. But then he got a bit excited and didn't just plant Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot and Cabernet Franc. All uh, the local specialities, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So he planted all those things. But he also decided to go for a few more eclectic varieties like um, Montepulciano.
0: Yeah, and they, they, they have other things now, don't they? Like like yep. Blau Frankish, mm. Arnais, uh, Nebbiolo. Yeah, and that's
1: not all. So I asked them why on earth they'd gone for this sort of cornucopia approach.
3: It's probably half for Hans <coughs> to even explain it. But see, this is... Hans loves wine. And they are, I mean, alone in Italy. How many grape varieties does Italy have? Two and, uh, and a half thousand. And, a
4: half half, yeah.
3: and, uh, and this is only Italy. So there's so many great grape varieties. What we mostly know are the French grape varieties. And then, of course, <coughs> the Barolo uh, Barbaresco, Acca Nebbiolo. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Tuscan wines, Acca Sanchovese. But there's so much more. And Hans is not somebody, you know, I think that was my, I think that probably that's why we work well together as a husband and wife team. Because I'm, I, I do the other side. I try to, to keep Hans reasonable. <laughs> but he's like an artist. And that's, I always have to explain that also when we have young students, because I also I do, you come to us, you know, this is not a winery who makes money and marketing people should come to because it's probably the total wrong approach. This is, but they say, because they see the work of a man who does it just for the passion. And I know that word passion is so overused, but in Hans's case, he, he is not interested in money or, or, or you know, in long term mm. or in planning or do a business plan. He just wants, he's, he sees something like we went to South America and then we did some blending in a really great winery there. And then we could see that the common area gives really something special to the blend. Mm. So, we came home and the next what I see is an invoice, a prepayment for the order of Carmineri. But do you know, he doesn't even discuss that with me. He just does it. And then in another discussion, I get to know that we have another white grape variety uh, after a visit to Georgia. So Hans is a very spontaneous person. He, He doesn't think things over, but he is... He's an excellent viticulturist. He knows his terroir. He knows Marlborough's climate. Mm. He knows what it can do. And mm. he has, how do I say, the total self-confident mm. that he can make a great wine out mm. of it. And that's <coughs> when we actually, when he said to me, we have to leave Switzerland, it's not working out having, you know, mm. obviously an estate there and and building one up in, in, in Marlborough. And it, it's quite hard to live a good life and friends mm. and family and uh, in a country where everything is is beautiful as well, and to go to the other end in a totally unknown situation, but for Hans, this is nothing Hans could easily you know let go of five hundred years of roots <laughs> mm. whereas else I think it is often the women who you know who think a little bit different mm. Mm. and i've I found it you know kind well. Pfft, so who sells the wine? How, how does it work there in New Zealand? Who, I mean, they don't drink that much wine, you know, we talking about the early 90s. Uh, I had no clue of export or anything because wines were sold from our estate. Customer came, they bought within three months, our vintage was sold, paid cash. So it was a, a good life. And then all that and but just Hans doesn't think like that. Mm. He just said, But it's it's fantastic. I promise you I will make great wines. Mm. And that's all the promise. He didn't promise me a good life. <laughs> just, just you great know, wine yes. <laughs> So you line. really have he can't he can't really say that from himself, but mm. that's that's really how Hans is. Yeah. And there are not many people like that. It's you know. I think it's a little bit the dying out race, actually.
1: <laughs> so the, the the passion of wine and, and, and in a way the the feeling of obligation to try things, to yeah. experiment, to see what works, to push the bounds of possibility. I mean, would you say in Marlborough is, is dominated by Sauvignon Blanc? Do you think Marlborough should be more oh, yeah. ambitious, more diverse?
4: Well, for me, you can grow nearly everything there in Marlborough. But to have reduced your yield... You can't go like Safe Blow. It's not possible for great quality of wine. Even now, Marlborough makes huge amount of self Blow. That's the most biggest production mm-hmm. in all New Zealand Safe Blow in mm-hmm. Marlborough. But you can go nice, borderland, everything where you want to do, very consistent. But in all fairness. Only 20, 23 years we make wine there. It's just amazing. No right. one made vintage, honest. No one.
1: So, so that is a good question, isn't it? You, you made this bold move, yeah. in order to be somewhere you could make virtually anything. That you, you weren't constrained by the climate or local laws or whatever. Have you fulfilled that ambition?
4: Yeah, it's for me. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah.
1: What a lovely thing to be able to say. <laughs> um, Just. And if you think Marlborough were to get more diverse, beyond say regional styles of something like. What would be the, the best way to go for it, do
4: you think? Look, at, Marlborough is actually more or less in, in big hands, big companies. Mm. That's a big, a big the downside. I don't like that. We need more smaller wineries, more family-owned wineries. And, and the young generation is there, but they think about it big. Big is beautiful. And that's a bit to said.
3: Sometimes I think there is maybe... It's really true. Big is beautiful. When you mm-hmm. come from Switzerland, for us, small is beautiful artisan. I think what Hans wants to say, Marlborough can do anything. It's one of the world's best wine regions. And we travel when we can every year to wine regions. And we come back and we say how lucky we are that we have land in Marlborough. (laughs) So the Herzogs are
0: helping to prove Marlborough can do so much more than Kiwi savvy. Yeah. Uh, they've only yeah. got their one organic vineyard, haven't they? And yet they're, they're producing a whole load of amazingly diverse mm. wines. Mm. And the secret, as Hans said, is low yields, attentive viticulture, minimal intervention in the winery.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people sort of dismiss, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon in Marlborough um, but, you know, we tried their Spirit of Marlborough 2016, a Cabernet Sauvignon Cabernet Franc Merlot blend aged five years before release. And it was glorious. Mm. Absolutely delicious, wasn't it? Classic sort of tobacco and cedar cassis wild mint, beautiful gravelly texture, fine tannin, utterly seamless, cultured, still very young. So, you know, something Therese likes to to recommend drinking with brie. And a bit of truffle oil.
0: Yum, yum, said. yum. We also loved their Spiegel, mm, uh, we tried yeah, the yeah, twenty seventeen. Yeah. It was like a, a sort of a sort of a beefed up version of Pinot Noir, wasn't mm, it? Mm. Uh, tons of of berry fruit, and then a, a savoury, meaty, peppery edge, um, and yeah. so juicy and and vibrant, but also serious and mm-hmm. and foody, almost mm. Italianate, yeah. uh, with a, that nip of chalky tannin. Absolutely delicious. Yeah,
1: and, and Hans recommends uh, drinking that with some crispy pork belly.
0: Ooh. Yum,
1: yum, oh, yum, yum, yum. Uh, and and these wines not only prove Marlborough can do all kinds of things beyond Sauvignon Blanc, but that the wines can age well, for example, too, which yeah, isn't always abs- recognized.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, and and as we're talking diversity, we should also mention that Marlborough makes everything from pretty good traditional method fizz to sweet mm-hmm. wines yeah. as well. Um, yeah. you know, and their work their work on on lower alcohol wines has been pretty impressive too. Yeah, uh, as, as, yeah. Is there anything they can't do?
1: Yeah it's sort of sickening no, really done. isn't it? Um, uh, on that note actually there was one final thing to mention before we, we come on to the tasting uh, and that's the sort of brave new world of the future um, and Marlborough is becoming a hotbed of wine innovation so I just want to bring Jamie back in briefly here.
2: And the vineyards it's cool we, we talk about it we started a project about five six years ago and we we talk about a vineyard of the future and and now you you got to wrap up you know the whole sustainability your people and everything else but we looked at automation as the way forward so we're part of a, a initiative um, it's called smart machines looking at automated vehicles so um, we have now got nine fully automated vehicles on our vineyards and by this time next year we'll they are to get up to about nineteen vineyards so basically we're going to be the way of the future for us and our vineyards is fully automated vehicles, so our vehicles at the moment can they mow, they mulch, they can trim, they can leaf pluck, and stuff like that you know, hopefully in the future they should be able to do you no know, no spraying bits and pieces so it's a fully automated vehicle so these are really cool vehicles, so they're they're going you know, they're out there operating today these these vehicles, and it just kind of changes our landscape where OK, we started with big blue tractors, you no, know, four tractors, you no, know, 50 years ago. Now, 50 years on, we're talking about fully automated vehicles in a vineyard. So that's real cool. Wow, vineyard robots in Marlborough. Well, <laughs> it makes
1: you think, doesn't it? Mm. Hopefully not robot drinkers. Uh, you know, we, we did talk a bit about this. Um, he, he also mentioned things like remote probes to measure soil moisture, which feed back to computers, which control the subsurface irrigation pipes. Subsurface irrigation, interesting. Mm. Another mm. sort of technological innovation. Mm-hmm. And that one's not just sort of new. It's, it's now the way of the future, Jamie says. Um, it's about minimising wastage, creating efficiencies. He also said they, they, they had to rebuild their wineries after the 2016 earthquake. And and so they've introduced smart tanks with everything completely automated. They also use fruit decanters rather than old bag presses, uh, which speed up the process, which means what used to take days now takes hours.
0: Yeah, so that, um, so there was so, a time when being ahead of the curve for New Zealand meant everyone adopting screw caps instead of corks. Um <laughs> but this is uh this is a different order of magnitude, isn't it? Mm, totally, um, totally. anyway, now we need to get on to this tasting. Uh, but you did taste some of the Brancott stuff when you were actually with Jamie, I didn't did, you? Did,
1: yes, I did. So I've already mentioned the Brancott Estate Seven so Blanc. Uh, we tried the twenty twenty two um together. It was it's you know, this is one of the best distributed wines in the region. Um made in, 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 in large volumes. But it's it's really bright and crunchy with a sort of tropical roundness. Sort of benchmark affordable marble Sauvignon Blanc and pretty decent value at 10 quid. Mm, yeah. um, then we also had the well had, had the chosen rose that their, their top Sauvignon Blanc. We had two vintages, but the 2015, in yeah, 2015, this is <laughs> this is quite old now. But it, it was, was just yeah, yeah. delicious, lovely, serious, savory, layered, sort of complex new wave Sauvignon. Uh, we had the yeah. 2010 didn't we, at home Yeah, not yeah, long ago. Yeah. That was the first one, I think, and it so was still sh- Showing delicious. that these
0: wines, the wines can age. Yeah. Anyway, I- I'm busy tasting here. So yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, talking of new wave Sauvignon, we've got a couple here from the, mm. the brilliant Grey Wacky, made by Kevin Judd, as mm-hmm. we said originally, of Cloudy Bay fame. Mm. Um, when we say new wave, we mean not just tropical passion fruit, typical of Wairau or zingy tomato mm. leaf of Aotree, we mean, so it's not just sub-regional, we mean other things are going on. Yeah. Um, so the straight Grey Wacky Sauvignon Blanc 2022, mm-hmm. it is flinty and mm. layered. It's beautiful. And, um, you know, while the yeah. while the while then the Grey Wacky Wild 2021, so a year year older, um, has wild ferment, as it suggests, and it, it, it's just, it's full of, it. sees a bit of old barrel, so it's full of roasted peach and there's some fresh curry leaf, Leaf really serious, uh, just an outstanding wine. And I think a wine that demonstrates the new frontier
3: for Marlborough yep, Sauvignon. Absolutely.
1: Um, moving on to Chardonnay, we're going to do this really quickly. Uh, we'll put all the notes on, on the website, mm. but moving on to Chardonnay, Ooh. we've got two outstanding examples here. Uh, first up is the Lawson's Dry Hills Reserve Chardonnay 2021. It's really a sort of classic style quite leasy, quite nutty savory and yeasty really with, mm. with a lovely elegant texture mm. um then we've also got the blank canvas reed chardonnay 2022 and uh, now this one is much more sort of struck match sort of <laughs> flinty that snap crackle pop oh, style back to snap, crackle, uh, there we crackle, are pop. yeah it's fleshy and nutty it's multi it's compelling Absolutely delicious. Now, we did recommend the 2021 in our New Zealand Chardonnay episode, and we definitely say Chardonnay is a rising star in Marlborough. Absolutely.
0: Beautiful. Anyway, onto something a bit different. Uh, Pinot Gris. Mm. It's the third most planted mm. variety in Marlborough. Often, New Zealand Pinot Gris sort of sits between Italian Pinot Grigio, which is sort of crisp, dry, usually a bit dull, uh, and then the richer, lusher Far more interesting Alsace Pinot Gris Mm, style. mm, But this one, mm, Villa Maria, Seddon Hills, remember this name, Seddon Hills Pinot Gris 2020 is stunning. mm, It's very much in the luscious honeyed Alsace mm, style, but it's fresh and refreshing. And it's full of baked pear, ginger, creamy honeyed notes. It it is off dry, um, but perfectly balanced and amazing with blue cheese. Yeah. And a all reminder a reminder
1: of the versatility of, of Marlborough, how it can do so many things. Mm. Um, you know, we've already touched on Hans Herzog's Zweigelt and Bordeaux Blend, but there's Syrah, Riesling and, and all sorts in there, isn't there? There's, Absolutely. You know, sky's the limit. But, you know, one thing we can't not mention before finishing, of course, is Pinot Noir, uh, another star variety in Marlborough, especially in the Southern Valleys. And we've got a really good example here, a, a good value example, because... That's something Marlborough can also do. Really good value. Mm. Uh, it's the Wairau River Pinot Noir 2021. It's just 15 quid, which is really good value for good Pinot. It's kind of juicy. It's crunchy. It's smoky with with a touch of spice and tannin. Yeah, I um, say
0: a crowd pleaser for a winter supper. Mm. Uh, mm. And as you say, great value. Right. We need to wrap things up there, but we'll put all the wine details on our website. So if you want more info, you can find it there.
1: Yeah. By way of closing summary, New Zealand's Marlborough wine region has evolved at warp speed over the last 50 years. Uh, From skinny sheep and shaky starts, the region has grown to be a serious producer of not just bright, breezy, savvy, uh, but also seriously fine, terroir-driven Pinot, Chardonnay, Syrah, Sauvignon and much more. Uh, When Frank Jukic made the brave bet 50 years ago on Marlborough's wine future, he was taking a huge risk. But his boldness has helped forge a bright future, not just for his own company and Marlborough, but New Zealand wine as a whole. And all of us wine lovers are grateful to him for it,
0: I think it's fair to say. Too right. We'll all raise a glass (laughs) to Frank and Mm. to all the many other pioneers and and brilliant producers in Marlborough today. Mm. You get a sense that there's still a lot more to come from this beautiful region, whether it's Vineyard Robots or fine Zweigelt. Uh, what a story it is.
1: Indeed. Uh, our thanks to Jamie Marple and Hans and Therese Herzog. Also to those who kindly sent in samples for us to pick the best wines from. Thanks also to New Zealand Wine Growers for sponsoring this episode, particularly Chris Stroud for his support.
0: Most of all, thanks to you for tuning in and joining us. Until next time, Cheers.